This is the Ethics Lab Podcast. Exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. We think of compassion as flowing really like an ocean. It's multidirectional at all levels of care. So that's what we're focusing on. We're looking for ways to diminish barriers to the expression of compassion. Have you ever experienced an event, a situation, or a decision where you felt that your professional integrity had been compromised? It may have occurred due to something you did, something someone else did, or simply a number of events that lined up in a way that made you feel you were in between a rock and a hard place. In that moment, you probably experienced moral distress. In this episode, we will look at moral distress in the healthcare environment. What are the clinical situations that cause moral distress to arise? What can be done to respond? Can it be cured? Or is it a part of our moral life? Our guests today are Dr. Cinda Rushton, Bunting Professor of Clinical Ethics at the School of Nursing and the Berman Institute of Bioethics at John Hopkins University. Dr. Sarah Rosenthal, Professor and Founding Director of the University of Kentucky Program for Bioethics and a co-creator of the web-based self-guided documentary, Moral Distress Education Project. And also Dr. Beth Lowen, Chief Medical Officer at the Schwartz Center for Compassionate Healthcare in Boston. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Uh, Cinda, could you offer us a definition, a picture of moral distress and moral resilience. So there's many ways to define moral distress. Um, one that I uh, commonly use is when a person is aware of a moral problem, they recognize they have responsibility to respond to it. They've gone through a process of reasoning about what would be the correct thing, but they can't act on it, either because of internal or external constraints. In the process, uh, I think what's really at stake is their sense of integrity and wholeness. Moral resilience, on the other hand, is a concept that is, is emerging and evolving that really focuses on the capacity of an individual to be able to restore or preserve integrity in response to some type of moral adversity. And that moral adversity might be moral distress. It might be truly a moral dilemma where someone is trying to figure out, you know, what is the right path. It offers a pathway for us to be able to restore our integrity in response to these inevitable ethical challenges. For many years, we focused on moral distress and the problem. And through you know, a great deal of research, we've documented the existence of moral distress. But I think the question now is, how do we respond to that? How do we acknowledge the reality that moral distress exists and then begin to think about how do we cultivate the qualities within ourselves as clinicians, as people, and at the same time develop infrastructure in our healthcare systems that support people 
to be able to do the right thing routinely in their day-to-day clinical practice. How did you begin your work in this area? What drew you to it? So I started my career as a pediatric critical care nurse, and very quickly I was confronted with lots of ethical questions. Children aren't supposed to die. Uh, We certainly don't ever want children to suffer, and yet they did. There was often complex, you know, questions about the role of parents in decision-making, how the clinical team's expertise ought to be understood. I didn't have a word for it at the time, but I was experiencing moral distress in trying to navigate those complex clinical situations with children and families. As I continued in my career uh, working in the ICU for a number of years, I eventually went back and got my master's and was a clinical nurse specialist. And in that role, I was often the person who was involved in helping parents make very difficult decisions in terms of treatment for their children. And so I found myself right in the middle of the cauldron, really, of uh, trying to help people and myself and the clinical team to navigate these questions that didn't have clear-cut answers. And at that time, there was a lot of technology that was developing. Uh, We were able to sustain the lives of very premature infants. We were able to do all kinds of complex surgeries to repair congenital malformations. And we were constantly you know, sort of struggling with what's the right balance of our technology and just because we can, should we actually be using all of this? That led me to uh, become more and more interested in the field of bioethics and to pursue education in that, in that arena and to do clinical ethics consultation, which I've been doing for almost 30 years now. Cindy, do you have any moral distress stories you could share with us? A number of years ago, I worked with a clinical team who were caring for a gentleman who had had a transplant and had been in the intensive care unit for months because of a whole series of complications that occurred uh, after his surgery. His body was uh, in many ways deteriorating both in terms of body integrity, so his skin was sloughing. He was actually aware and able to mouth words that nurses perceived as asking to be relieved of the suffering he was experiencing. The prognosis was very, very grim. And at the same time, his family was continuing to ask for aggressive treatment The surgeon who was uh, in charge of his care was very willing to continue to press on under circumstances where I think most of the rest of the team felt that what they were doing was actually causing more harm than good. I was involved with that case uh, as an ethics consultant and watching the actual physical and emotional Uh, burden that the clinicians caring for this gentleman were experiencing. People were not able to sleep. Uh, Some people were physically um, very uh, upset by uh, their participation in a plan of care that they 
they really felt was in a way a violation of their values as a clinician. The consequences of that case were were so profound in in terms of teamwork, in terms of the communication with the family. People talked about going through the motions of being able to provide care for him, but not really being present because they were so distressed themselves. And a theme that developed with the family was a, a persistent trying to convince the family that that it was time to stop aggressive tr- therapy, which left the, the family feeling uh, abandoned and um, unsupported. It's those kinds of complex situations where, you know, you look at it from the patient point of view, you look at it from the family point of view and the clinical team. Often, I think um, we struggle to try to figure out a a way forward. How do we make sense out of this? And how do we uh, find a way that allows the patient, the family, and the team to have integrity in the midst of uh, very different perspectives about what that looks like? And what was interesting was during the context of an ethics consult, We were able to hear from the family, from the team, uh, from the surgeon who was caring for this patient, their different perspectives that I think allowed the team ultimately to feel that even though they didn't agree with the goals uh, that the family had, they were able to find a place where they could support the family and the patient and themselves without so quite so much cost to themselves. And I think that's where the moral resilience comes in of how do we harness in a way our commitments and our intentions to benefit our patients and begin to, to recognize that there is a cost to these kinds of cases on everyone. And so that means that we have to also pay attention to what are the patterns in the system that are creating the conditions for the moral distress in the first place. And there was another moment within your career where your attention moved from the experience of moral distress to wanting to respond and understanding moral resilience. Can you help us understand that shift in your attention as well? The shift from focusing on moral distress to moral resilience is actually sort of an interesting one. I had been spending a lot of my time, both in terms of scholarship and research and clinical practice on moral distress. And I had an opportunity to uh, be a visiting scholar in Geneva for a month. And I was preparing a proposal for a book on moral distress, and I just couldn't finish it. And I kept thinking, why can't I, why can't I finish this? And as I had the chance to pause there and look at all the research and to see that we had over three decades of research that documented the problem, but very little to suggest what the solutions were, I began to ask myself, what's the alternative? How is it that some people are able to be in these really challenging ethical situations and not become overwhelmed by them? What is it that enables them to 
preserve their integrity in the midst of these situations? And what are the system factors that enable them to do that? So it was really there where I began to uh, explore what the alternative might be. And as I was uh, in the literature, I found the term moral resilience almost as a throwaway term. You know, we should be more morally resilient. And it kind of captured my attention. I thought, well, what does that mean? And so I began to um, do work both empirically and conceptually trying to think about what moral resilience actually is and how we might be able to specifically cultivate it among clinicians. Cinda, are there key distinctions or components to moral resilience? So the capacities of moral resilience include personal integrity, that sense of wholeness, of being in harmony with our values and beliefs, our actions, our words, and our choices. The second one is relational integrity, the, the sense of our interconnectedness of individual integrity is important as we try to think about how do we do the right thing when we have different values and perspectives. So it's allowing every person to be able to be whole in the midst of different perspectives and viewpoints. The, the third one is buoyancy. It's the idea of being able to bounce back from ethically challenging situations. And also the idea, very importantly, I think, of being able to bounce forward, um, that we can learn and grow from, from moral adversity as well as just bounce back. Self-regulation and self-awareness is really developing the neural pathways that support us to be able to be non-reactive, to be able to focus our attention in ways that support understanding and uh, good decision-making, and allowing us to uh, have some tools to support us in the midst of these really emotionally and ethically charged situations. The fourth is moral efficacy, the idea that we want to cultivate our ability to see ourselves as capable of recognizing and responding to ethical challenges and having the tools and skills to be able to, to do that and to reason about these uh, important ethical trade-offs that we have to make in our clinical practice every day. And the final one is self-stewardship, the idea that in order for us to serve others, we have to also be committed to preserving our own well-being and integrity. And it's not a selfish act. It's, it's really in service of uh, the people that we are called to take care of and to do that in a way that recognizes that when we deplete ourselves, we are not able to provide compassionate, respectful care for others. Uh, Dr. Rushton, given the work that you've done on moral resilience and the work you do, 
in ethics consultation. How have you used this framework with ethics teams or the clinicians that you may serve with your ethics service? So I think there's some some practical things that can be done. One is to recognize that everybody is coming to these situations trying to do the very best that they can. And I think sometimes that acknowledgement helps to open up a different kind of conversation. Uh, One of the things that we've been using in a program that I've uh, been implementing for nurses, the Mindful Ethical Practice and Resilience Academy, is some very specific tools in terms of what we've called EPAWS to give some questions that can lead to insights about the situation. So, for example, a lot of times when we come together around these challenging clinical situations, there's a lot of unstated assumptions that we're making about patients or their families, about each other, about ourselves. And so having some questions to try to uncover that. What are we intending to bring about here in this situation? What would we see as a good outcome? And how does that compare with what the patient or the family sees as a good outcome? Um, Are there any biases that we might be projecting into this situation that need to be acknowledged? So, for example, in the situation involving a person with substance use disorder, there's often this feeling that this person uh, is intentionally choosing not to pursue treatment or that they are being irresponsible. And so getting those kinds of um, assumptions out on the table can often help us to see that there might be other possibilities. What are we not, what questions are we not asking that we should be asking? What information do we need that we don't have? And how can we get that information? Those would be some examples of um, ways to shift the conversation away from the same narrative that we often tell about these cases. Part of our job in doing ethics consultation is to bring a different awareness and to shift the conversation hopefully to provide new insight and understanding. Dr. Sarah Rosenthal, professor and founding director of the University of Kentucky Program for Bioethics, also co-created the web-based self-guided documentary, The Moral Distress Project. Sarah, what led you to establish The Moral Distress Project? Well, most of us who focus on clinical ethics consultation will come across considerable moral distress, and we've all been inspired from cases in practice. But I often felt very impotent to fix moral distress with one ethics consult and wanted a one-stop site where you could click a button talk to an expert, a very senior colleague who could help more junior or mid-career colleagues. And that's what the Moral Distress Project does. Uh, The website is moraldistressproject.org, and it really functions as a self-guided documentary. And I did this in conjunction with faculty 
at East Carolina University. Maria Clay is one of my colleagues that I worked on with this. And what we did was we sort of crashed a nursing ethics conference and invited several experts at that conference to come and interview with us because we we wanted to get some consensus around definitions of what moral distress is because there's a lot of confusion over what it is and what it is not. We also wanted senior experts to be able to talk to a junior person that might be viewing this, someone who's come from experience, someone who has enough experience that they can actually talk about cases. Because one of the issues with moral distress is speaking up, not feeling safe to really talk about what has caused moral distress. So that's really what that that project was about. And it was also very helpful for me because I was having a lot of moral distress with some of the cases that I was dealing with. Although I, I would think that moral distress for a clinical ethicist is a little bit different in that we feel moral distress when we can't fix something. We can often fix many things as clinical ethicists, but there are for some of these cases, one clinical ethics consult isn't going to do it because it's such a systemic organizational ethics problem, if you will. Sarah, for our listeners, can you offer us a couple of examples of what your experience of moral distress has been in a clinical environment, in a hospital or elsewhere? Cases that come to mind that cluster because they're often mostly the same are what we call these ECMO bridge to nowhere cases. ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And it's sometimes known as, it's sometimes known as sort of a a heart lung uh, machine for, for some people. So it's basically a situation where somebody may need a transplant, patient might be appropriate for a transplant or it's generally meant as a short-term situation to bridge them to somewhere else. What happens is that they're often very poor candidates to, br- to be bridged to anywhere are put on an ECMO machine. And sometimes they're placed on it because the team is really just trying to avoid an end-of-life discussion, especially when we're talking about patients in their 30s or 40s. The patients themselves often find this an intolerable situation and request to withdraw life support. And this can be, these can be very wrenching cases. So I've been involved in several of those. And when you go to clinical ethics consults, they're known as ECMO, quote, bridge to nowhere cases, because that's sort of how they, how they cluster and feel to the team and, and to the clinical ethicist often dealing with it. And we are also seeing what's called the crescendo effect. And that's where there's lingering moral residue from an unresolved case. So something happened. Everyone had a lot of moral distress. Nobody ever talked about it. And then the same case comes along that's just like the one they had. And But this time, the moral distress is heightened and if everything feels worse. As we turn to responses to moral distress, Schwartz Rounds has proven to be a valuable resource. Dr. Beth Lowen is Chief Medical Officer at the Schwartz Center for Compassionate Healthcare in Boston. And Beth, how did the Schwartz Center and the Schwartz Center Rounds begin? Some years ago, um, a very gentle and kind and 
brilliant man became ill. He fell ill with fatigue, persistent cough, malaise, fever, and tried to get in to see his primary care physician and went back and forth to the office several times, seeing various members of that team. But he wasn't feeling any better. But I think more importantly, he was not feeling cared about. And he ultimately switched practices three months after the onset of his symptoms. He was diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer. That patient was Ken Schwartz. Ken suffered through an ordeal that was harrowing, as it is for many patients with life-limiting illnesses, and he describes some of his interactions with his caregivers in a wonderful article that was published in the Boston Globe magazine not too long before he passed away. He described in particular uh, his interactions with his oncologist and his oncology team who stood beside him, who walked alongside him in his journey. He talked also at the very beginning of his journey about a nurse who was doing his pre-op screening before he even had his diagnosis. He was going in for his lung biopsies. And the nurse was very breast, very harrowed. You know, she was, she was very preoccupied, distracted, going through a checklist. But Ken happened to mention that he had just learned he had advanced lung cancer. And that nurse must have heard something in his voice because she put down his her checklist, she made eye contact, she looked at him, must have seen the anxiety, the fear in his eyes. And she said she was really sorry to hear that. And they began a conversation. She promised to try to catch up with him later on. Ken left. Next day, he was waiting on a gurney and his johnny, waiting to be rolled into the OR. And that nurse came down looking for him. She sat next to him. And Ken wrote about this and many other stories in that article. It's on our website. But he said that in the end, what really mattered most was these acts of kindness, of compassion, a simple human touch that, in his words, made the unbearable bearable. Two days before Ken died, he called his family close friends together to his bedside and asked them to start a center. Ken was a healthcare attorney. He was very well informed about health policy. And at that time, uh, managed care was in full swing. And the quality and patient safety movement, the patient experience movement had not really taken hold. And he was quite concerned that medicine was heading towards a purely transactional enterprise. And he asked his loved ones to start a center to be sure that compassion would never be extinguished in healthcare. Ken died in uh, 1995, and that's when the Schwartz Center was founded. Within the Schwartz Center, there is a particular methodology called Schwartz Center Rounds. Could you describe that for us? Schwartz Rounds are these really heartwarming and wonderful multidisciplinary gatherings where any caregiver, and we define caregiver as anyone who touches the care of a patient or a family in a healthcare organization. It doesn't matter whether you are bringing up a tray 
from the kitchen or you are the chief of neurosurgery, we are all caregivers. And anyone who is working within that healthcare organization, institution, facility can come and gather to talk about some of the really challenging social, emotional, psychological aspects of illness, and in particular, the impact on those of us who provide that care. It's really about supporting the caregivers so that they can share their perspectives, listen, offer and receive support, so that they can return to their work with renewed insight and compassion in order to better serve those who need our care. These are just remarkable gatherings. There's a particular protocol that we follow to help people stick with the integrity of the rounds. We train facilitators, local facilitators, to conduct the rounds in a way that's consonant with our hopes and our goals for the Schwartz rounds. Uh, So there's a very robust plan and sort of an infrastructure that needs to be in place both locally and, of course, we uh, help uh, supervise, manage, whatever, and train people uh, from the Schwartz Center centrally. Given your time as chief medical officer with the Schwartz Center, what has caught your attention? What are you paying attention to? I think it's easy to focus our attention on what's negative and what's happening that's going awry uh, in, in the healthcare system. Of course, we're concerned about policies that and practices that put barriers up for connection. Uh, and of course, we're following the trends in burnout. Um, we are looking closely at what's happening to support well-being and resilience. It's easy to focus on the negative. I think Schwartz-Rounds is one way, and particularly when it's blended with a robust program to address the well-being of all caregivers in an organization, it's extremely effective, and it can be the backbone of support for such programs. So we're looking at what are the innovations that diminish the barriers between connection, between connection and compassion as it could flow among patients, families, clinicians, teams, amongst teams, towards each other. We think of compassion as flowing really like an ocean. It's multidirectional at all levels of care. So we want to diminish the impediments and the barriers for the expression of compassion at all levels. Leadership for staff, leadership for patients and families, caregivers with patients and families, colleagues, caregivers, and teams for each other. That's what we're focusing on. We're looking for ways to diminish barriers to the expression of compassion. And Dr. Lown, what what gives you hope? What are the most amazing, inspiring developments that you've seen in this arena? I have spent some time over this summer crisscrossing the country and interviewing some of the finalists for our National Compassionate Caregiver of the Year Award. This is an award that the Schwartz Center gives yearly. We This is actually the 20th anniversary of the Compassionate Caregiver Award. And so it's a very special 
milestone for us this year. But listening to these incredible caregivers talk about what is meaningful to them, tell us stories about the patients they've taken care of, of the people that they've shepherded through all kinds of sometimes unspeakable suffering and sometimes just this incredible joy at the end, uh, that gives me hope. There are wonderful people eager to provide, to offer their compassion. There is no shortage of people who have felt called to offer compassion, to walk alongside patients and their families. It is absolutely inspirational and gives me plenty of hope. What we have to do is shine a light on that as a fundamental value and try to organize healthcare around that. Tough choice ethical dilemmas in healthcare can cause moral distress among clinicians, surrogate decision makers, patients, and families. Today, we've learned what moral distress is and practical responses being used successfully to respond. Resources mentioned by our guests will be posted with this episode on our website at missiononline.net. Appreciation for our guests and listeners. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.